Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc. through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 5. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic at Dalhousie University. And I'm happy to be joined again today by Dr. Mark Kirchhoff. He's a division head of dermatology in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa and the Ottawa Hospital. Welcome back, Mark. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to be back. Together, we're hosting this second episode of Dermalog's special segment that we're calling Derm Detectives. Uh, It's part of our season-long deep dive into complex medical dermatology. And for this segment, we're inviting residents to present us with difficult cases to see if we can solve the cases. I'm feeling pretty confident about our chances tonight, Mark. Although, caveat, we're recording this and it's 10 p.m. my time in Halifax, so if things are a bit rusty, I'm going to blame being tired. Joining us today are Drs. Janice Chang and Mina Boshra. Dr. Chang is a PGY4 dermatology resident at the University of Ottawa and co-chair of the CDA Resident and Fellow Society. She has an interest in complex medical dermatology and clinical teaching. Perfect podcast for you. And Dr. Bosch is a second-year resident also at the University of Ottawa Dermatology Program. His research focuses are skin of color, dermatology, and 3D printing. Thank you all of you for joining me on this special episode. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us, Dr. Purdy. It's an honor. Really excited to be on the other side of the table for once. (laughs) I'm feeling a little nervous to be on the other side of the table, to be honest. Um, Okay, so here's how this is going to go. You guys are going to present us with cases. We might have a few questions. You might have some questions for us. We're going to put our thinking caps on. Janice, I think you're going to start things out for us. So I'm going to send it over to you. Yes. So I'll be showing you a case that came our way on call recently. We got a call from Hematology Oncology to see if we could book a patient urgently into our dermatology clinic um, because this patient had a diagnosis of multiple myeloma and was actually due to start his process for getting an autologous stem cell transplant in just two weeks. He had developed this new rash that you'll see shortly diffusely over his body, and the oncologists were concerned that this might impact his ability to get a transplant. Okay, I'm taking a few notes. Me too. Rash transplant. Rash body. I'm forming a differential already. Yes. Lots of details on the phone. (laughs) So this patient showed up to our on-call clinic, and this is what he presented with. Uh, He was a 59-year-old gentleman who had about 10 or 15 of these scattered over his body. Well... This is interesting. This is not what I was expecting when I pictured body rash. I don't know about you, Mark. I, I, I agree. I, I would, would call this, you know, individual lesions, lesions, individual papules, maybe nodules scattered over the body. Yeah. And we're here looking at pictures of what looks like a, a, an extensor arm, maybe a leg and, an, and a lateral neck. Um, and we're seeing essentially, as Dr. Kirchhoff said, these nodules, probably violaceous nodules, um, they look like they'd be relatively firm if you were able to to palpate them. And then I see there's some, you know, poikilodermatous change on the neck, and I'd have to dig down a little bit deeper if that was pre-existing or if that's part of this new presentation. And can you remind us again, what type of malignancy was this patient? Yes. So he had a recent diagnosis of IgG lambda myeloma about six months before this skin eruption presented IgG, lambda myeloma all right okay so i mean that's where your mind goes to initially when you see this in a when you get a phone call from he monk you're like is this some sort of you know uh cutaneous manifestation of lymphoma leukemia um or myeloma in this case um but obviously we can expand the differential beyond that we don't want to you know pigeonhole all of our heme onc uh referrals and and so uh, we can go down the differential. Um, Carrie, do you want to take that one away? <laughs> yeah. Th- oh, Mark, thanks so much. Uh, I-, I was just writing down a few things. And again, I-, I think, you know, part of the problem once you become a consultant is that you immediately go to some of these these thoughts about, you know, lymph- leukemia acutis, lymphoma acutis. I think, though, you also have to think about other 
um, potentially malignant processes because anything can can look like that in the skin. Um, with that violaceous discoloration too, we don't have enough history about him to know if there might be an infectious etiology that could be contributing. Um, so I'd be thinking about that in the back of my head. Um, there's a, almost a bit of a vascular kind of component when I'm looking at it. But again, I, I think it's always a little bit hard with photos um, to think if there might be something down that route. Uh, classic derm, you can include other weird infiltrative things. I don't really think this is sarcoidosis or anything like that. Um, but I would probably, for the purposes of being fulsome, possibly include that on my list um, one thing i would say is we you know this looks amyloidish right and so if this person has it does have that yeah, look so that yeah myeloma in the background you always have to consider some sort of uh so those those um immunoglobulins that are floating around can be deposited into the skin um and we do know that there is different forms of amyloid that can be uh, manifested in the skin so i think that's that's one consideration uh, if I saw one of these in isolation, I, I would include other types of malignancy as well, right? Like on its own, you would probably think about... That's what I said, yeah, yo. Pigmented basal cell carcinomas, <laughs> though. You know, throw in a melanoma there. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. Know. Yeah, absolutely. A single lesion. I also want to see this guy's face because to your point, if you're thinking about amyloid changes, you want to see those those eyelids um, to see if there's any pinch purpura. So uh, I'd want to see that too. It, so, Mark, what would you do here? I mean, like, honestly, we're going to do our full history physical, but I think you and I both are we're taking a biopsy, of man. Of course, yes. Yeah. And if and if there's okay. different manifestations, like, I don't know if palpation shows us different uh, depths uh, or different, you know, I guess, uh, presentations in the skin, I might take two biopsies because I, some of these, I suspect, are slightly different. The one in the neck looks uh, perhaps more flat, less indurated, while the one on the wrist there mm -hmm. looks much more nodular so if there are different morphologies they also always recommend taking multiple biopsies a hundred percent and i think the other thing not so much in this case we're not going to do immunofluorescence but we always want to think about like would we do a tissue culture is there any benefit when you're doing a biopsy in a patient like this to take more than one piece right or like to take a larger biopsy and transect it for for culture or whatever. Um, again, nothing's really making me do that just yet, but I would need a little more history. So, you know, you, you told us a little bit about him, but we'd like to be a bit more fulsome, I think, and say, you know, what's the deal? How is he systemically? Does he have any B symptoms? What was my Loma presentation symptoms? Was it back pain? Was it like they found a light chain because someone ordered a serum protein electrophoresis when they were working up itch or something? Um, you know, does he take medications? Uh, is, are any of them new? Has he traveled? Anyone sick at home? Da, 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 the usual bits. So I'd like a little bit more of that bit too. And then look at yes. all of his skin, obviously. And to sort of give you a few more clinical points based on what you mentioned, this patient actually had no facial findings, including none of these papillonodules above the neck. Dope. Uh, they, were, yeah, <laughs> they were all on the neck or below. And then the poikiloderma on the neck there, it was a bit unclear as to how long that had been present for, but certainly the patient considered it within his realm of normal. Okay. Uh, in terms of his myeloma history... He had, he had been diagnosed just six months prior, but before that, he reported about a year of back pain. And that was what actually led to the diagnosis. So he was found to have, at baseline, these lytic bony lesions and compression fractures. He also had baseline anemia with a hemoglobin in the 80s or 90s, as well as renal impairment. So those were his main myeloma findings. Uh, he had been on chemotherapy uh, with a cyclophosphamide bortezomib and dexamethasone combo, as well as previous pulse dexamethasone and radiation, but all of that treatment had stopped six weeks prior to us seeing him in clinic. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I've seen a fair number of patients referred to me with weird skin manifestations on bortezomib or whatever, but this is not one of them. Um, it tends to be more of that widespread morbilliform, um, pretty, pretty significant eruption. Mark, I don't know if you've had a lot of... I I have not. I have issues. not had uh, a lot of issues, but I, I would say this doesn't look like a drug reaction, generally speaking, right? It no, does not. I agree. This looks like I an agree. infiltrative process of some sort. And I will say that the hematologist oncologist definitely had a, one differential in mind when he referred to us, something he really wanted to rule out, and it had come up on your great differential as well. Um, and that was, of course, amyloid. lymphoma, leukemia, oh, cutis. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I said um, amyloid, I jumped in. Because 
This is the thing that I do sometimes find interesting, although I guess in a myeloma instance, it would help to know if it was leukemia. I find sometimes patients will be diagnosed with like an AML and then they have lesions. It's like, what do you think? And I'm like, does it matter? Because you're going to treat it. But I do think it may be relevant to know if they have like a neutrophilic dermatosis or something that might respond just to the treatment alone. But I sometimes I find it challenging in heme onc patients um, to determine what difference would it make if we knew what the skin is. The one, the one caveat to that, uh, I remember doing way back when, way back uh, when I was doing my residency in Vancouver, we had a lot of heme onc patients, a lot of transplant patients. And I will say that they often uh, used skin metastases as a sign of a more aggressive cancer um, and one okay. that may require a change in therapy. Um, so I think it can be used sort of as a prognostic and indicator and, and perhaps, uh, and I think there, if you really dive down, there are certain genetic rearrangements that um, are also more commonly manifesting in the skin. Uh, I don't claim to remember or know those, but at one point in time I did. And, you know, it, it actually in this case may change because if it's all, you know, if they're looking at doing an autologous transplant, but a patient has leukemia cutis, they're probably not going to, they're going to switch to an aloe, presumably, Again, not being a hematologist, that's what I would consider they would likely do. Um, but yeah, it's interesting too to maybe. Sorry, Janice, did you mention that the the dexamethasone preceded the lesions, or the yes, it did. Okay, so he had been on pulse dexamethasone for quite some time, and then he had been on a chemotherapy regimen called Cyborg, which does include dexamethasone up until six weeks before this presentation. Okay, and he would have developed these lesions about six or eight weeks before we saw him. Okay, so he was on steroid when he developed the lesions. Yes. To be clear. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Okay, so I'm still taking my biopsy. Yeah, absolutely. And are, are you <laughs> still thinking of the same are you stuff? Take one for tissue culture at the same time? I'm not. I'm not okay. going All to, right. Mark. I don't think I'm going to do that at this point because, well, actually, sorry. Descri- did they feel firm or fluctuant? That's going to... Yes. So to sort of go back to Dr. Kirchhoff's point from before, on examination, pretty much all of these 10 or 15 lesions were papulonodular. So all were firm to palpation, had a degree of induration, felt very much like dermal papules and nodules. I'm just going to go on a limb. I'm no longer taking a tissue culture. I'm taking a good sized biopsy, though, because I really want to get the full thickness. So I'm not going to piddly four millimeter punch one of these i'm either gonna get my six or eight out and get into the fat or i'm gonna take a small ellipse what would you do mark well i mean i can do uh i probably can get one of these nodules in a six millimeter punch biopsy and do one of these larger punches and take that out yeah that's fine yeah. I don't, you know elliptical with sometimes with deep and superficial stitches uh takes a bit of time it does yeah Plus, what are you told us is hemoglobin, but I don't know what his platelets are. Like, hopefully they're over 30. Yes. So aside from his hemoglobin, the rest of his CBC was actually relatively normal. Uh, he had normal white blood cell count with slight neutropenia, and his platelets were actually improved. So he had always been thrombocytopenic, but by the time he saw us, uh, his platelets had gone back up to the normal range. Probably because of his steroids. Yes. Is it? Um, Okay, so that, that, you know, then you just think about what's the safety of doing a biopsy, what's the risk of infection, really none safe with that platelet level. I'm going to take it and I'm going to ask for it to be processed stat because this potentially may impact the patient's treatment plan with hematology. Sounds good. I agree. So that's what I'm doing. I don't need any more information. I'm, I'm ready for that path now. Yes, and that's exactly what we did. So uh, we, we we sent a rush biopsy with a little piddly four millimeter punch. Oh, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just kidding. Obviously, you got an answer though. We put yes. a lot of bu- budget restrictions here in Ottawa. I, I, to- <laughs> in, the, in the land of plenty that is Halifax, uh, it might be different. Okay. But, uh, no one has ever referred to the east coast of Canada as the land of plenty government city guy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go crazy. Okay, but I do think from a just I guess the only thing I'd say is that let's say you took one of these lesions and you didn't get a good answer or there was like you didn't get the full depth. 
you could maybe then suggest, you know, for the learners, you go back and take a larger piece. Like, you know, if you don't get enough tissue, go back and take more is kind of the, but or, okay. And let's, or let's if you don't agree with the results, that's the other thing. I Take, take, take another exactly, one. If, if yeah, it, there's, there's no totally. good correlation between your clinical observations and the biopsy result, take another biopsy. Yeah. Like if this came back, like near normal biopsy, something is yes. amiss. Hopefully it didn't come back as that. Janice, let us know. Yes. So our four millimeter punch biopsy, these are representative photos. Oh, I was like, oh, it simulate. Yeah. came <laughs> from Dermnet. Oh, I'm just kidding. Yes, we did such a good punch biopsy that wow. it showed up on Dermnet. Uh, no, so these are representative photos, pretty comparable to what the pathology result showed, but I'm happy to also jump ahead. Um, I'm going to, like. listen, I'm going to take one for the team here. I'm just going to say, when I started dermatology, I'd come from internal medicine. So the way I would have, you know, described this literally is there's a big blue ball in the dermis um, and the epidermis over the area looks not normal. And when we're looking over into the close-up version, you see a lot of extravasated red blood cells that are probably into more vessels than I'd normally be expecting to see, which clinically correlates. Like we saw this sort of violaceous looking thing. Um, and then there's those big multinucleated cells, which don't ask me if they're histiocytes or neutrophil or not. They're not neutrophils or some kind of like atypical lymphocyte, but they're probably something like that. And I rely on my dermatopathology colleagues to actually describe this to me because the words to me are more important than the picture because I no longer recall exactly what this picture means. And I'm willing to admit that on the podcast. Wow, okay. Yeah, I, I think the the, the nuclear um, representation that we see in this image is quite bizarre. Like some of these nuclei do look highly atypical. Uh, I, I, I think some of the, I think most of these actually are vessels. Um, I do think that there's mm -hmm. a proliferation of, of blood vessels that's occurring here. I do see, you know, one or two eosinophils as well. Um, Ooh. yeah. Oh, yeah, good eye. Well, there you go. I'm maybe seeing those yes. now that yeah, you're mentioning yeah. it. I think we could agree, though, this is not a normal biopsy. I, I would I would go on a, on a limb there and agree with you. I, I This is not what I would usually term normal skin. So now what I really need to know is what did the dermatopathologist write in the description of this slide? Yes. So he said that, or sorry, I should... Blah. They said. Yes. Our wonderful dermatopathologist said that uh, these sections showed fascicles of spindle cells uh, that formed slit-like vascular spaces. There were many mitotic figures. Uh, there is a dermal hemosiderin and there are, derm sorry, there is dermal hemosiderin and there are extravasated red blood cells. Uh, eosinophilic globules, a good job, Dr. Kirchhoff, are identified within the spindle cells, and the spindle cells extend into the deep particular dermis from the papillary dermis. There were also a few scattered plasma cells. They did do a lot of special stains as well, oh, which we can go through. Oh, look at those special stains. There's one oh, there in particular goodness. that I like that gives away uh -huh. the diagnosis, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> do you want to say what the special stains are? What's your exciting special stain there? Uh. <laughs> Um, well, it's well. Do you want to read what it says here? The, the sure. So uh, they did a number of special stains and found that the lesional cells were uniformly positive for CD thirty one, ERG, CD ten, and HHV eight. So, okay, this is going to show my ignorance. Are you excited about the HHV eight? Always. Or the CD thirty one. I find Both the HHV eight to be slightly more Correct. helpful. In this instance. Okay, and then we will mention that a whole bunch of other tumor markers for spindled cell tumors are negative. So like HMB45, melanA, P16, P40, SOX10, S100, those are all negative. So even if we didn't have the clinical picture and we only had this pathology, we would already know it's not a lot of different tumors. So Correct, that's helpful yeah. too. Mark, enlighten us on your thoughts on HHV8. Why is it so exciting? Well, I think because it, it sort of points in the direction of a diagnosis of 
Can I say the diagnosis already? Are we going to release the information I, right I, now? You know what? I, I don't, like, should we keep people waiting? Or I don't... Okay, well, I, I mean, this uh, points heavily to Kaposi sarcoma. Yeah, which you know what, Mark, we didn't we didn't mention that. We man. didn't we didn't put that on our differential. Um, I'm a little bit thinking back now, going, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> that fits. Okay, it's Oops. it's true. However, you know we we're we're being tainted by this background of uh, heme onc patient with uh, myeloma and um, on different chemotherapies, and so we were. I think you know. Um, I agree. It wasn't on our differential, and I don't know. Was it on the differential of the on call team? No, so I have to say, <laughs> our differential is pretty close to what you came up with. We talked about lymphoma, leukemia, cutis. We talked about myeloma, Mets. We talked about, you know, a neutrophilic dermatosis in the context of cancer, such as sweet syndrome. We talked about maybe even poem syndrome in the context of multiple myeloma. Uh, but I have to say, Dr. Purdy made a really astute observation looking at the photos that we didn't quite catch in person either when she said earlier that the lesions looked rather vascular in appearance. It's just that I didn't put it together with thinking about Kaposi's sarcoma. So I, I'm one step away, but uh, that's really interesting. Now, okay, so we get this biopsy back. I think now we're going to go back and think about some of the risk factors that this patient has mm-hmm. and kind of think about whether this is, you know, the that sort of, I can't remember if you told us the, the patient's general background, but, you know, are we thinking this is more of the um, indolent older gentleman from the Mediterranean background, or are we thinking this is more uh, immunosuppressed, risky patient, which I, I kind of think is probably the latter, just given the history here. But Mark, what do you... No, I, I agree with your assessment. Um, I don't know what, if we know the ethnic background. What is the ethnic background? Of yes. The so he is a 59-year-old gentleman, and he was Caucasian. No Mediterranean background. Well, that does not help us. Okay. So that, well, that makes it less likely that it's that kind of classic old version of, of KS. Um, okay, okay. So, I, I mean, at this point, we're going to bring the, we're going to, well, this patient's admitted, so I guess we're going to go back and see him and tell him the bad news or not the bad news. We're going to hopefully, I guess this is my question. When, if he gets an autologous wouldn't he now not be able to get an autologous transplant because he has Kaposi sarcoma? And if not, would it be recommended that he be treated for that prior to undergoing further treatment for his myeloma? His transplant was delayed, but not actually because of the Kaposi sarcoma. Oh. I was wondering if the two of you might do any additional blood work for this patient. I was about to say, I was like, I before we jump I on, this is... I would check, okay, there's H- a couple of other HIV, HIV. <laughs> Hep B, Hep C, mainly HIV. Okay, yeah, we, we would go back and do that. That's a great point. I'm surprised. I'm, su- I'm surprised they wouldn't do that prior to starting the chemotherapy. Yes, right? so actually this was a completely incidental finding and again, not something that we thought of because Kaposi was was not on our differential. At the same time that we were biopsying this patient, they had already sent for the standard test that they would do as part of the pre-transplant workup. So about a week after our biopsy went out, uh, his HIV preliminary test came back positive. Hmm. And with this, I'm assuming that if his preliminary test was positive, if you went on to do a CD4 count and viral loads, you'd expect a low CD4 count and a high, potentially high viral load because this is one of the, you know, I don't know what we call it anymore, but back when I was in medical school, that was an AIDS-defining illness. And I, I think there's probably a different terminology now, but that's not great in the context of HIV. In particular, it sounds like this gentleman was not aware and therefore has not been on heart or anything like that. Yes. So his CD4 count did come back at 144. Ooh. Yes. Um, and ultimately, his HIV antibody testing showed positive result for HIV-1 and his viral load was 587. Okay. So he got an urgent appointment with the HIV clinic, who again saw him within days. All of this was moving very fast. And he was not on heart, uh, but they did start him on Bicturvy within a few days of the result coming back. Okay. And then... The lesions went away. The lesions went away. Well, presumably the lesions should go away, right? That's right. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Usually uh, when I've seen these types of cases, um, 
again, mainly in my residency, I, I remember the patients who received antiviral therapy did extremely well. I, I feel like most of the patients that I've seen here are in the transplant context where you're ending up switching their tecrolimus for serolimus or kind of modifying their um, uh, immunosuppressive medications, not so much finding HIV. So that's really a very interesting case. Has he gone ahead with his transplant he, since then? Yes. So the story for now ends po- on a positive note. Uh, he's actually now day 18 post-transplant and about to be discharged home. Uh, he's still on the heart. Uh, he had his initiation chemotherapy and was able to get his bone marrow transplant. And his Kaposi's, as you mentioned, is totally gone with the combination of heart plus the chemotherapy. Yeah. Well, now that's a truly multidisciplinary, complicated medical case. So, Janice, despite the fact that we didn't get the diagnosis, I still think we passed the test. We would have gotten there eventually. Yes, I think both of you did wonderfully, especially when we consider that it's 10.30 p.m. Yeah, 10.37. But as an internist, you're used to staying up late, in fact, overnight, all night, and doing these types of cases, right? Mark, I I finished internal medicine in 2009. Uh, I probably shouldn't admit that, but it's been a while. Okay. It's been a while. And as you well know, in dermatology, occasionally we are up at night, but not frequently. Okay. Great case. Thank you, Janice. I'm going to pass things over to Mina to stump the Germ Detectives Part 2. Well, I I don't think you were stumped at all, but I... (laughs) I will try to show you the case that I saw also on call uh, that I was just very excited as a second year resident to figure that one out. So this is a case that has a quite a bit of a timeline. So there's multiple pictures spanning the timeline and it changes with the timeline. So that's what made it a little bit complicated. So I'll start with the first picture and then tell you a little bit about the story. So we're doing it in reverse. No history, just photographs. All right. <laughs> That's how I like I like it. So I'll just give you the ID. It so we I was called for a seven year old that was an otherwise healthy child with bilateral injurated painful plaques over the bilateral lower legs. And what you're seeing right now is how it started a week before his admission. So so I'll just ask, do is do I appreciate two of these indurated plaques and one of them has a, a bulli and a vesicle is that correct am, am i yes at that time okay. there were two plaques on uh the posterior side of one foot or yes. one leg and then the other side there was just one so on the left leg there appears to be two indurated areas they have a bit of a violaceous discoloration to them i would love to palpate these to see if there's an atrophic area or if it's uh, firm to palpation and then on the inferior one, that's uh, closer to the plantar aspect of the foot, there appears to be numerous uh, vesicles and perhaps a larger bulli in the center that appears to be filled with serous fluid. So it has a yellow appearance and it appears somewhat tense. And then on the right foot, again, posterior aspect, there is a, again, I think I appreciate uh, this violaceous uh, patch or plaque, depending on palpability. I'm going to be honest, I'm so used to looking at older folks' legs with stasis problems that that's initially what I thought you were showing us until you gave us the uh, story. So Mm -hmm. I agree with Dr. Kirchhoff's description, and you really do want to reach in and and have a feel here. But I think, you know, off the top, um, you're thinking about uh, if let's assume that they're palpable and indurated, you're thinking about perhaps a paniculitis um, and so, you know, the differential paniculitis, erythema nodosum being very common, but you'd also think about the other causes of paniculitis. So alpha-1 antitrypsin would be possible in a child, pancreatic paniculitis, um, something that's a connective tissue disease, maybe a, you know, lupus paniculitis, kind of rare in a seven-year-old, but thinking about that, um, that blister bulla vesicle on the back is kind of throwing me off and it makes me wonder as well about some um, potentially really inflammatory or infectious etiologies although it didn't look particularly purulent Um, I would be wondering about a more superficial and deep process in that case Um, so I'd want to dig into that a touch those those violaceous areas make me think of of morphia which Mm. I do, do see in younger children 
And so again, the palpability would help. And then the other thing that would that I think might be happening when you see these two different morphologies and you can't reconcile, reconcile it appropriately, I always think about something else that's being done on top of that. So application of you know polysporin or some sort of an yeah. allergen that's causing allergic contact dermatitis yeah. to the secondary lesion that's throwing us off that wouldn't necessarily be in keeping with the rest of it. And, and I think we're seeing another image here. Yeah, now this is the another image from um, that the mother had provided of another change in the presentation. So this is a bit later on the other foot, and you're starting to notice now it looks completely different. Yeah, this. Uh, uh, so now we're seeing, uh, again, posterior lower leg. And, you know, I, I almost have to step back a bit, but then I'm too far away from the mic. Um, but these have almost more of a, they don't really have a target appearance per se, but it makes me wonder if there are lesions that have been either secondarily scratched or irritated. They, I almost see like a little orangey yellow color, although this would be unusual. You know, I mean, this kind of looks like a more of a classic wheel pattern here, but I, I need a little history. You know, is this, is this acute? How long does it last for? Is it puritic? Um, does it leave a, a spot behind what was happening at the other, you know, was this, is this all associated with something, for example, like a virus that triggered it? Or, you know, does a, does a child have a rheumatoid or JIA or, uh, you know, inflammatory bowel disease or something like this? I'd be kind of thinking about those things as well. So I, 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 I agree with the three ring. So that makes me think, is this an erythema multiforme in, in, in progress or some very early manifestation? The other thing is when I see these type of targetoid lesions, and then if we take that back with the other picture we just saw where there's a a blister or a bulli or a vesicle that forms, I do think about arthropod assault. Um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. if that might cause these lesions, particularly in, on the lower leg, we, we know that we can see fleas, for instance, that inhabit you know areas that are closer to the ground and, and the patients might be more prone to um, uh, bites in those areas. So always a consideration when you see different morphologies, bites can manifest in various ways. Totally agree. All right. So I'll leave you with the last photo, which is the actual one that I saw when I saw the patient. And then I'll tell you about the story in full. I hope our detective work is going well here. I have Very no idea well. Where we are. So far, like, <laughs> as I saw the pictures, like, I was starting to think, oh, maybe it's this. And then I saw the, uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the targetoid lesions. I was like, oh, w- w- what about this? And now this is what, huh. what you're seeing right now in front of you is what I actually saw in person. It's, it's kind of quite hard to see fully. So I, I, I agree. And, and you can tell me if we're in the right direction. So if I look at the, uh, what are we talking about? The lateral malleolus there, there appears to be a violaceous discoloration. Um, is, is that correct? And then there's perhaps an erythematous linear uh, plaque going up the leg. Am yes, so the, there is violaceous uh, discoloration of that malleolus, which is where um, some of the plaque used to be. Okay, but it has progressed on to become this more arcuate uh, presentation on the posterior calf that is w- uh, that had woody induration on examination. Oh, oh. yeah, it looks like it, it's almost a peau d'orange kind of. Uh... Uh, well circumscribed more or less like you almost feel like you could just get in there and tell where it starts and stops I also note that there's an emla patch <laughs> on the left posterior calf indicating that these guys are probably going to do what I would do which is try to get a piece of tissue but um, and it looks like maybe there's a few and it's really hard to tell I don't see any epidermal change correct me if I'm wrong other than a couple of areas where maybe the child has like scratched and picked something open in the in the lower um, leg there, but otherwise it, it looks predominantly a dermal process. Absolutely, yeah. So other than okay. that scratch, um, to me, other than all of the other vesicles that we saw on the previous pictures, uh, when I actually saw him, it was purely dermal process, just this very well-defined, demarcated, rhythmatous, arcuate with this... Um, so you could even say like there's a little bit of annularity to it just because the center almost had faded back to normal. Um, 
Also, sorry, what time of year did this? Yeah, I was about happen? to go. I was about to go down this differential here because <laughs> like I was like, we're, we're seeing pull if, back of it. This was in, end of in, November, early December. Oh, that's a bit atypical. I was in gonna, Ontario. Yeah, okay. in we, Ontario. We don't have. I, I think Carrie was thinking uh, tick bite Lyme disease. I was. I was a little because, bit. Because yeah. you know when we see when you describe that indurated woody appearance, you can see scleroderma changes with tick bites. Um, so absolutely a good consideration. Um, did he do any traveling? He didn't do any traveling, but I did ask where he lived. He lived on a farm with chickens, dogs, cats, and snakes. Chickens? He had dogs. pet chickens, dogs, cats, cats, snakes. And snakes. Yes. Okay, and nobody else has anything similar at home? His sister had something very similar to it. Okay. Um, and it was only a week before this had all started that his sister had something almost exactly the same with one caveat difference, which is she had fever and it was unilateral mm. and it was extremely painful. Do they change the litter of the cats? Then? <laughs> <laughs> not, the, about... I, not the, the kids. <laughs> no. Okay. It's probably not Q fever then. Okay. I was about um, to say, yeah, it doesn't look like Q fever either. It doesn't. It, so. And see, this is the part. You're, so you're giving us the clue. If you say, okay, when I think of a person that lives on a farm and they have cutaneous manifestations, I'm thinking more tinea. But that's epidermal based, right? So mm-hmm. you're going to see, if you see like a trichophyton varicosum, for example, it's going to be very inflammatory, very scaly. And this is not scaly. So that's a little bit weird. Um you mentioned snakes. Let's back up on that. Yeah, okay, that's a good idea. What yeah, are you thinking because, about with snakes? Well, I guess, I guess. I mean, I don't think this is the case here, but sometimes snake bites can present very weird with induration, some True. spreading erythema. So snake or spider bites can have a, a sort of a EM, almost necrotic type picture. I don't know where this is in the progression, but something to consider. Uh, I still I still like the idea of, of Lyme disease and tick bites uh, being the fundamental cause. I, I think... I, I mean, it's possible it's still on the list here, at least in Nova Scotia. You know, you don't have ticks don't go away until it's like persistently, you know, minus 10 for a couple of weeks. So this year, there's probably ticks still alive um, here. No, there you go. In theory. Um, but and, and then also is, is Mina trying to trick us here yes. and has nothing to do with the farm and the snakes? Maybe. Uh, and was he outdoors without like his boots on or oh, something cold, cold like paniculitis is that that's what, what i'm thinking yeah, yeah. Okay. or maybe you know uh, some of these eosinophilic fasciitis type of picture can kind of although it'd be very atypical in an otherwise healthy child to look like this and and it's not like the sister wouldn't just randomly get it um with a fever yes yeah hmm. I, I, so you know i think there are bites of some sort to be determined which ones Something exogenous turning on a process Correct. that we're seeing. Yeah. I mean, I think in this case, you're probably going to go ahead and, and the kids here, there's something to see. You got the Emla patch on. You're going to do, this is where I'm going to do a four millimeter punch biopsy. Um, I'm going to do some blood work as well. I, I'm going to, you know, do my basic blood work. I'm going to do CBC um, in particular. I'm probably going to add a CRP or ESR to see if there's active inflammation. Um, I'm going to do my uh, liver enzymes uh, renal stuff. I I don't know if I'm going to get fancy at this point. I'm probably going to do a urine analysis just because in every kid I do one and make sure there's no protein in blood or thinking about weird connective tissue things. I'd probably do a creatinine as well. Um, I, I don't think there'd be a lot of value at this juncture in going down a connective tissue workup in a seven-year-old, but that'd be in the back of my mind to come back and think about you know, ANA and compliments uh, or other weird and wonderful stuff if I wasn't getting anywhere with my basic things and my and my biopsy. The other thing I will say is if this is a tick bite and we can identify the source or the region of the actual bite, to take a biopsy from that and that mm-hmm. we can potentially identify the actual bacteria, the Borrelia burgdorferi, uh, in that uh, biopsy, that would be something to consider if you're you're looking to make that diagnosis of Lyme early on. Yeah, yeah, and and in that case, you could also do the the serolo- serologic uh, 
you know, Lyme test, but it might be too early to your point to kind of have that, have that come up positive. And then of course, you know, prior to this, because we don't think like this anymore, um, because oftentimes the resident goes and does all this first, but, uh, you know, that full history, physical, all of the pieces for the, for the child as well. Like as you said, the sister had a fever, but just to ensure that he didn't have any localizing symptoms or, or documented fever, um, is where I'd go. So I need, I need more info. I would check for lymphadenopathy as well. A hundred percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Forgot to do that um, in, a, in my mind, but we did it. Of course. When we examined we the child. And of course, a... you're looking at the rest of the skin surfaces, right? And the ocular, sur- you're going to look at the mucosa. You're going to look um, in the folds. You're going to make sure that you're not missing anything um, on a full cutaneous examination with hepatosplenomegaly, a little feel, a little lymphadenopathy feel. There you go. Is this another human herpes virus? This is a weird EBV or something. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, no, give no. us some info. Mina, all right, help us. All right, I'm ready. We're flailing. Ready. All right. Okay, all right. I'm just so kidding. I'll tell you the whole story, and then I'll get okay. into the uh, investigations, which basically Dr. Perry just said word for word. Um, so ba- basically the patient presented with this one week of the painful enlarging plaques on the lower legs, he was seen by his uh, family physician giving Keflex for five days because they thought it was cellulitis just like his sister, which did work uh, out in terms of the sister. She got her Keflex. She did well. Everything had resolved. But in his case, there was no improvement. So he was seen by uh, emergency medicine and they were, he was given IV antibiotics with ceftriaxone for four days, no improvement. Then he was sent to our hospital because ID needed to see they examined him. They saw this, um, these painful wood, uh, woody-like consistency, and they were thinking that still could be cellulitis. Weird that it's on both sides. Let's do some tests. Uh, but they started him on ANSEF anyways. Um, in terms of social... I feel his- like I want to jump in there just yes. for the purposes of like, you know, Mark, have you ever seen a case of true bilateral cellulitis? I, I think I've seen Don't it. say you have. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It does not exist except in the case reports. How does that sound? It's like, okay, it's, okay, like okay. it's like metastatic basal cell carcinomas, you know? You're 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 going to write a case report about it. Um uh, There's but, actually quite a large one here right now in the like inguinal anyway. Yes. Okay. Rare. <laughs> okay, okay. Super rare. Super rare. Okay, sorry Mina, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> I just for people listening that is not the number one. <laughs> That is way down on the list for every dermatologist when you see bilateral indurated red woody legs. Immediately Back our to reaction you. to. I, I, I okay, fully okay, agree. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, we, we, we left that idea right away, especially with three different I, uh, antibiotics, two of them IV with no improvement. Uh, so on a little bit of further history, so the mom said there's no medication intake at all. There are no topicals used, not even over the counters. And this is the first time this is happening. There were no fevers, no malaise. The review system was negative. Yes, he does live live near a forest on a farm with all of these animals, but there were no animal bites and they didn't check regularly for tick bites. There was none. So language serology was not done at the time of seeing him. But we pushed a little bit. So um, in terms of his... Uh, investigations. So just like Dr. Barry said, that's exactly what they did which, with one extra added test at the end. Uh, the blood cultures came back negative. His ESR was slightly high at 25. His CRP was slightly higher at 17.3. His creatinine was normal. CK was normal. Complements were normal. EBV was negative. LFTs were normal. Urinalysis was normal. But they did, of course, a CBC, which showed eosinophilia of 3.3. That was the only changed from normal. And that 3.3 kept climbing. Uh Uh-oh. That's not good. Um, Okay, this is when you rack your brain for causes of peripheral eosinophilia associated with skin conditions. Um, And when I think about EOs, I think about, I mean, first thing in your head that kind of pops up is, you know, weird infections, parasitic stuff. I don't think it's that. Um, but I suppose that's still a possibility. 
Um, in terms of the hyper-eosinophilic syndromes, of which are not my area of expertise or forte, I would think about that because um, lymphos- or eosinophilic, uh, super elevated eosinophils can be associated with like a mast cell leukemia and other kind of weird stuff, I think. So I think about that in the back of my head. And then obviously all of the other cutaneous inflammatory conditions where you can see EOs like even like, you know, severe dermatitis or eosinophilic fasciitis or um, I'm drawing a blank Wells syndrome. So the quote unquote eosinophilic cellulitis. Um, It's weird because it's a pediatric case. So I don't know how many of those things necessarily apply, but those are the things that I'm thinking about. And so I would call my friends uh typically here that would be my local immunology allergist friend and go what do you think about this and then decide you know if further investigations were needed you know i yeah i of those i like wells probably the the best um uh, i have seen hyperosinophilia and parasitic um infections chronic ones um but usually they'll have GI symptoms of some sort, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a travel history sometimes, not always. Sometimes you can see localized uh, parasitic infections. Um, when they're drinking the water in the stream in the backyard. Yeah, and something they get like giardia. that. Right? Yeah. But you're right, yeah. that would have GI symptoms. So. Yeah, Unlikely. exactly. Unlikely. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, think, I think Wells is of those that you mentioned is probably my favorite. Which is the last one I mentioned for the record. Um, but it came to me late. Okay, Mina, you guys took a biopsy, right? Yes, we did. Uh, the seven-year-old was actually very nice about it and allowed us to take an, a biopsy without any issues. Fantastic. So we took the biopsy. Are you going to share with us what it showed? Uh, yes, I will share with you exactly what it showed. Um, I will say that, um, yeah, given everything that we saw, we thought almost exactly the same, then the same exact list. So... We did the biopsy. We started the patient on clobetazole because we didn't think that there was anything infectious. And the um, ID was thinking the same thing, that this is not infectious. They were kind of ruling stuff out. And they were like, there's no other symptoms at all, no fevers. His white blood count, other than the asymptoia, was completely normal. Um, and in the back of my mind, I was thinking also Wells. That was kind of my top one as well. Um, and then Googling it even a bit more, I found like there's also arcuate wells. So I was like, huh, maybe it is. Um, so he was actually discharged from home because he was just very stable on the clobetazole. And seen two days after discharge, he was actually doing fantastic. And most of his rash had already started dissipating just on the clobetazole. Now, the biopsy, um, I can read you out loud what it said. Uh, Let's see. Were there flame figures? I was about to say. I really want to know. That's the key. That's what we're looking for here. That's That's what I really need to know. That's right. All right. So um, it showed an unremarkable epidermis, just like we said. And then in the dermis and subcutis, there was a diffuse inflammatory infiltrate composed predominantly of eosinophils. The eosinophils became more numerous with depth and seen clustering around collagen fibers, which are covered with basophilic nuclear material and degranulated eosinophilic material a.k.a. flame figures. Most of the inflammation was concentrated in the deep reticular dermis, no granulomatous inflammation or vasculitis, rare neutrophils. There is edema in the deep dermis and collagenous septa in the subcutaneous tissue. Uh, Gim stain for the sinophils is technically unsatisfactory. The Steiner stain for spirochetes was negative for Borrelia bacillus of Lyme disease. And uh, they put in the histological differential diagnosis uh, wells, eosinophilic fasciitis, and arthropod bite reaction and drug hypersensitivity. But um, given specifically how uh, the there was no wet shape to the eosinophilia and it was deep uh, infiltration, but not dense enough in the fascia to call it eosinophilic fasciitis, they said that the most likely diagnosis is eosinophilic cellulitis. Which which can be caused by bites. (laughs) Exactly. Right? So the circle completes itself here because technically that was not wrong. Yeah, technically because that those begin those morphologies at the start, you know, were so varied, um, and and and, which is odd, right? 
So I'd be interested to know what the underlying etiology for the Wells uh, syndrome is in this case. We are two, and we were all thinking the same thing. It just looked too much like an arthropod pipe at the beginning, then leading to changing the entire morphology to eusophilic uh, cellulite bilaterally. And, and I think, you know, for the most part, as you guys use like an ultrapotent topical steroid or antihistamines are often like the mainstay of, of treatment, sometimes versus systemic steroid, and then occasionally anti-neutrophilic uh, uh, things are needed. I haven't had a ton of, I could probably count three or four wells that I've ever seen. And I think, you know, one required Dapsone, but um, uh, a very interesting case. But it's, it's all the same kind of treatment as you'd use for bites is what I was going to say. So I think that makes it a bit of a challenge at times as well. Yeah. Um, recognizing that clinical eosinophilic fasciitis should be like much, much deeper and really wouldn't resolve that quickly and certainly not with a topical steroid. So I, I think, you know, obviously that's that's ruled out mm-hmm. pretty early. I agree. Yeah. Derm detective strike again. Now he's clear. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I felt uh, I felt we did an okay job. I don't know if you if you had to give us a rating out of ten on these two, I, I would say we're like a <laughs> seven. We're passing. I was going to give us a seven. Seven. We're yeah, passing. We're, we're passing. We're we're not stellar. We're not stellar. We're but... not excellent candidates. No. But no. you know what? We went through the process and eventually got to the diagnosis. It's both true. Times. It's true. And treatment true. plan. So really, isn't that our goal as clinicians? It's true. So there, therefore, you know, any residents that are listening. It's not excellence, it's competence. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And you know what? If we had said right away, as we knew immediately what it was, it would have been too short, and the podcast would be three minutes. So we had to... Stretch. No, I'm just kidding. Stretch. That's exactly... <laughs> we, did not, we did not know what those were. Um, listen, I want to... First of all, I want to thank everybody for joining us. Uh, special uh, shout out to Janice and Mina for bringing these excellent cases and being great, uh, what's the person that feeds detectives information? I don't know. You guys are like our informants. You're our informants, yeah. and you did an excellent job. So thank you so much. And as always, Mark, it's been a pleasure solving dermatologic crimes with you. Yeah, is this going to be a recurring series? Are we going to do like a whole season I, six I of just so. all derm detectives just all the time? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should ask the audience if that's what you think it is. Uh, was that what you think it should be? Just let us know in the comments or, you know, uh, let me know, whatever you think. I'll put on a better outfit next time. I'll, I'll get a brush up on my path is what it turns out. But um, anyway, again, thank you all so much for joining me. Really appreciate it for taking the time. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It was really fun. Thank you for having us. And thank you for listening. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs derm detectives if you enjoyed it please give us a rating and write a review where you listen it helps others to find these interviews and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes for more great cda podcasts be sure to check out jcms author interviews hosted by my colleague dr kirk barber thanks again for joining us until next time i'm dr carrie purdy